Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that as we study your word, as we look at this text tonight, that we would be doers, not only hearers, that your word would have an impact on how we look at our lives, how we live every moment, and Lord, that we would honor you and you would receive the glory and praise with every thought, every deed, every plan that we make. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. William Ernest Henley. It's a name most of us don't know, but if you lived in the 1800s, you probably would be familiar with his name. He was a famous poet and a critic. He wrote one famous poem that a lot of us will know, but the poem came as a result of a difficult life. William Ernest Henley had tuberculosis in his bones, and it affected him most of his life, uh, especially in his legs, and he ended up losing one of his feet because of it. He had ill health all of his life and even lost one of his daughters. If you've uh, ever read Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island, you're familiar with a character by the name of Long John Silver. Not the restaurant, this is a guy. He is modeled after William Ernest Henley. He was a cripple, but he had a robust personality and an inner vitality that empowered him. In one of his early battles with tuberculosis, he wrote this poem entitled Invictus. Latin word meaning unconquerable or undefeated. The poem goes like this. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears, looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. Here's the part you're familiar with. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. The attitude reflected in this poem is one of agnosticism. Educated, even biblically educated, agnosticism. Let me reread this last stanza. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. This last phrase has kind of become an anthem for our culture. It continues to pop up in movies, in songs, and just as a statement. People, people say this all the time. I'm afraid many of us here have the same mindset. A lot of us reflect this biblically educated agnosticism when we look at our futures, when we look at our plans. We set goals, we make plans, we dream of a future in which our abilities, when our self-will and our dedication are all that we need to succeed. How often do we allow what we know about God, about his character and his revealed will to guide to take over our future planning? The passage we're looking at tonight is James 4, 13 through 17, if you'll open there with me. This passage tells us about the folly, the danger of not accounting for or accepting God's will into our plans for the future. As you open to James 4, 13 through 17, allow me to briefly introduce this one-of-a-kind letter. This is what Martin Luther called the right straw-y epistle. It's a difficult book. The author of James is James, the brother of Christ. He writes in James 1.1, to the 12 tribes that are scattered abroad. This, coupled with James' frequent re references to Brothers indicates James is writing to Jewish believers. It's difficult to identify a theme in the book of James, 
There's a lot of different topics that are addressed, and some people have called James the Proverbs of the New Testament. But I think it's a lot more than a bunch of disconnected ideas. MacArthur has uh, outlined James as a series of tests of genuine faith. This is a helpful way for us to think about this book, and especially our text for tonight. James provide an example, provides an example of how genuine faith regards future plans. In this context, James has addressed pride in several forms. First, he looked at pride that exalts its own interest over the interest of others. Then there's pride that exalts itself to the level of God and judges others. And finally, in our text today, there's pride that exalts itself over God and making plans for the future. James has a couple of instructions for the proud. In verse 7, in chapter 4, he says, Submit yourself to God. Verse 10, he says, Humble yourself in the presence of the Lord. These instructions are built on God's clear revelation of his opposition to the proud and his kindness to the humble. So in James 4, 13 through 17, we're going to see two opposing dispositions to future planning. Two opposing dispositions to future planning. These two dispositions will reveal where one's faith lies. Look with me at James 4, 13 through 17. Come now, you who say... Today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil." Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. The first disposition is found in verses 13 and 14, and that is the audacious disposition of autonomy. The audacious disposition of autonomy. You might think, well, that's a mouthful. We'll We'll go through and we'll explain it. James narrows the audience down here in verse 13. He says, come now, you who say. This is like a father calling his child in from a group. He says, come now, you And he's specifically zooming in on the believers who speak and act in a certain way. He's going to describe that. In chapter 5, verse 1, he's going to address a different group of people. He gives special instruction and correction in these these two verses, in verse 13 and then in chapter 5, verse 1. First, he's going to give us an example of what this audacious disposition looks like. James has addressed sins of the tongue, and he spent most of chapter 3 dealing with sins of the tongue. Here he's concerned with what the tongue says, but it's more than that. He's looking at what the tongue reveals about one's faith. Read verse 13 with me. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, and spend a year there, and engage in business and make a profit. Look at the details of the plans in this passage. This individual has planned the time, today or tomorrow, that's the time of when these plans are going to happen. There's also certainty of we will. He doesn't say we would like to or we may. He says we will go to, he's planning the direction. And such and such a city, he's got the location figured out and spend a year there. That's the duration of how long he's going to be there. He says and engage in business. He's got plans for everything and he's even planned the results. He says and we're going to make a profit. So much is assumed in this statement. This guy seems to have everything figured out. They have the next year locked down, and he's sure of it. Planning and bringing plans to fruition has only gotten easier in our day and age, has it not? Think of how easy it is to pull out your phone and punch in the time, location, activity, what you're going to be doing, how long it's going to last. It just gets easier and easier, and more and more people are asserting their plans and becoming self-theist. 
our whole lives can be planned in our phones with just a push of a few buttons. Perhaps you're like this. Perhaps you know someone like this. Can you hear the pride in that statement? The assumed certainty and the level of detail are super self-confident. But I got to admit, I, I like to plan like this too. I have this tendency in my heart where I want to have the future planned. I want to have everything organized and laid out. I want to know what the next week is going to look like in the next month and the next year. Always coming up with plans. This is my fourth year of seminary here, and questions seem to be coming almost daily of, so what's next? What are you going to do after seminary? What's the next year look like? What's the next semester look like? Perhaps you're getting similar questions. People are asking you, what, what does the future hold for you? And you're beginning to wonder, what does God have next for me? Perhaps you're just focused on this week. Maybe you're planning this week right now. No matter how far in advance you're thinking or planning, you're planning. All of us are planning our school schedules, work schedules, ministry schedules, family schedules. Our lives are full of responsibilities, and it takes planning. Sometimes very careful planning, sometimes very detailed planning, even planning like what we see in this text. But James is not correcting the planning. He's correcting the heart attitude, the disposition of the planner. The plans that James highlights here in this verse are carefree. They seem like they will lead to a life with great satisfaction. The success is already planned. There's a sense of having it all together and being successful that is assumed by this planner, which can be kind of alluring for us. We can think, man, I wish I had my life together like that person. I wish I knew what the future held. I wish what the ne- I knew what the next couple years hold. Proverbs 23 addresses this desire that can arise in a righteous man to live a carefree life of the unbelieving. In Proverbs 23, 17, it says... Do not let your heart envy sinners, but live in the fear of the Lord always. Surely there is a future, and your hope will not be cut off. James is aware that this sort of planning might be tempting, but he's aware of some other things too, and he addresses those in verse 14. In verse 14, the audacity of that initial statement is identified. Look with me. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. This is what a planner's nightmares are made of. Waking up and realizing, I forgot something. There's something, one detail I missed. This is a huge detail. This is a very important detail. And this guy didn't even take it into consideration. He forgot that his plans all center around him being alive. He had the next year or two planned, and the next 24 hours are uncertain. In all reality, the man of verse 13 couldn't know for certain all of these things. But James is highlighting this, this one important hole in it hole in his plan here. There's kind of an irony here. This guy had said, I know for certain this will happen. And James says, you do not know. Audacity is defined as the willingness to take bold risk or rude or disrespectful behavior. This planner is making bold claims. His boldness in planning is risky because of a factor he failed to account for. His plans would totally be ruined if he woke up the next morning with an illness. If he woke up the next morning and found out he had cancer, his life would be over. All of his plans would be over in that moment because he's not factoring in God as being in control of his life. James identifies the second factor of this audacity. This is more in line with the definition of audacity as rude or disrespectful behavior. Look at the second half of verse 14. James says, you are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Pastor Rick has referred to in Ecclesiastes' idea of steam off a cup of coffee, the puff off a match when it goes out. 
James uses that illustration for life. Life is short. Life is quick. Life is not going to be around forever. The ESV translates this as, What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. This is a common theme in Scripture. You don't know how long you're going to be around. Don't make huge, big plans when you might not be around to fulfill them. An example of this sort of planning is found in Luke 12, verses 13 through 21, if you want to turn over there with me real quick. Luke 12, 13 through 21. Jesus tells a parable, and while the point of this parable is not planning, the audacity that James confronts in our text is seen in this, in this passage. Luke 12, 13 through 21. And I'm going to start actually in verse 16. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself saying, What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, This is what I will do. He starts making a plan. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. I'm going to be successful. That's part of his plan. He said... And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for years to come. He's got a plan that extends several years into the future. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So is a man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Obviously, the point of that parable is covetousness, not planning, but we can see clearly illustrated the folly of making plans when we don't know what tomorrow holds, of making plans for the future that are our success and our well-being when tomorrow is uncertain. And planning and living our lives without God, we can be kind of like a child. I think of my son, Oliver, and at times he gets it in his head that he's going to go move some big object or that he's going to get into the car all by himself and buckle himself, things that he cannot do on his own. And he gets this idea of independence. He says, you know what, I'm going to go do this. And you see him go and he tries and he fails. And you say, hey, buddy, you need some help there? No. Quickly, he knows, he knows one word, he knows no. And he says, no, I don't need help. We can be so much like my son. We can be so much like a little child. And our attitude towards God. When we make plans for our future, we get something set in our head that we're going to do something, that we're going to act a certain way and not realize we're completely dependent on God, that our life is dependent on God. This planner in James has completely left God out of his plans. It's foolishness. It's audacity. And planning and living our lives like this, we're foolish. We're audacious. Whether we admit it or not, when we pretend that God doesn't exist, when we pretend that he's not the one that sustains our life, can a genuine believer really live like this? Can a genuine believer really neglect God's plan? That's why James, people have outlined James's test of faith. Is this is a test of our faith. How do we look at the future? Are we going to trust the Lord for our future? Is my faith genuine if it fails to trust God for my future? Are we guilty of this same audacity Do we make plans for the year, plans for this week, plans maybe for the rest of this evening that neglect God and assert our own ambitions, our own desires? Have we become too busy to stop and evaluate how God would have us live and act in our classes, in our homes, in churches, in our workplace? 
Are we pretending to not know how God would have us live? Do we act like God hasn't revealed his will, like God hasn't told us how he wants us to live our lives? When we create our schedules that center around our desires, around our needs, let's get more practical. Are there things in our schedules we can't give up or we treat as certainties? Look at your schedule for the next week. Think about what you have planned. I was convicted during my study, preparation for the sermon, about my hobby of basketball, both playing and watching, that I've often, I've often made time for instead of or prioritized over different activities that I know are more in line with God's revealed will for my life. In contrast to this audacious disposition of autonomy, James provides a positive example. This is found in verses 15 through 17. And it's the humble disposition of dependence. The humble disposition of dependence. This humble disposition is a clear contrast. Note the beginning of verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. The contrast is made not only in the content of what this guy says, but in the character and his disposition. In other words, James is not just correcting the missing factors of verse 14. He is correcting the missing mindset. The disposition of dependence begins, of humble dependence, begins with a conditional clause. Look, look with me. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. This is completely opposite of the first guy. He says, if the Lord wills. The grammar here in this conditional clause suggests that what follows is uncertain, but still likely God's will. That is not to say that the actions or plans are contrary to God's will, but rather the fulfillment of one's plans should be subject to God's will. One should never plan contrary to God's revealed will. I think we know that. One should plan in accordance with God's revealed will with the knowledge that God hasn't fully revealed to us what our lives are going to hold. We don't know what the future will hold, so plan like we don't know. Don't plan like we have everything figured out. Planning with this contingency, the Lord's will, with this affirmation of God's sovereignty, is essential for all believers. Look with me again at Luke 12. We're going to go back to Luke 12, and this time verses 42 through 48. Jesus tells another parable about a wise steward. And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and sensible steward whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that slave says in his heart, My master will be a long time in coming. This is something he doesn't know and begins to beat the slaves, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him, at an hour when he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with unbelievers. And that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but few. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they entrusted much, of him they will ask all the more. Again, here's a parable where the main point isn't planning, but we see clearly illustrated wise planning, planning that takes into factor God's will, is rewarded. Planning that leaves God out of the picture is punished. I want to take just a moment and kind of clarify something that might be on a lot of your minds. This is the issue of when to use this phrase, if the Lord wills. 
or Lord willing. Some of us have a tendency to use this a little too much. Some use this phrase all the time. If the Lord wills, I will finish my sentence. If the Lord wills, I will finish this sermon. If the Lord wills, I will eat dinner tonight. If the Lord wills, I'll go to work or do laundry tomorrow. Alternatively, there's the person who ends every sentence with, Lord willing. I'm going to go to church on Sunday, Lord willing. I'm going to help you move, Lord willing. I'll be there, Lord willing. The phrase and variations of it are so common. We hear this all the time. It's almost become trite and at times deceitful. People use these phrases to make things that aren't the Lord's will become the Lord's will. And at times to express their own will. We use this to express our own will at times. Some even use this phrase as their main method of evangelism, as if a single reference to God is going to fulfill the command to make disciples. This is not to say we shouldn't use these phrases. I think we should. It help, it's a helpful reminder for us, but it's got to be more than just a verbal preface. preface. It's got to be a mental preface where we're thinking through what, what these words actually mean. There's a very real danger that we would falsely identify or confuse the Lord's will. Let's seek to live our lives by God's will as revealed in his word, so then we can all say, if the Lord wills, and then actually follow through with what what we say next. Let's plan our lives with both implicit and explicit dependence on God and see how God uses that to reach the lost. I was thinking about this. In a nation that has the Declaration of Independence as a founding document, it's hard to believe that there would be those, even believers, who struggle. It's not hard to believe that we would struggle with this idea of dependence. Our nation is built on the idea of independence, and we don't like being dependent on anything or anyone. But the many uncertainties of independence are far greater than the contingencies of dependence. Consider Proverbs 19.3 and 9, which read, Commit your works to the Lord, and your plans will be established. The mind of a man plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. There's an assurance that God will guide and bless those who commit their lives to him. Myro reminded us of that this morning, talking about the Lord's characters being caring and comforting and protective. It's a special sort of guidance that the Lord graciously gives to his people. Psalm 23 and many other passages assure us the Lord leads and will always lead us in the right way. In the Sermon on the Mount, which has a ton of similarities with James. If you ever get a chance to sit and just look and compare the Sermon on the Mount with James, it'll be a great study for you. In that sermon, Christ teaches that God has great care and knowledge of our daily needs. So we need not be anxious or hasty to make plans to care for ourselves. In Matthew 6.33, Jesus says, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Sometimes we get so busy planning little bitty things things that we really don't even need to have a plan for, things that will figure themselves out. And we take that and get worried about those things and take that as a burden upon ourselves. The Lord's going to take care of you. The Lord's going to take care of these things. We have that promise in Scripture. The Lord will take care of his people. His character and care are certain. Not only is there a difference in the certainty of these two opposing dispositions, there's a difference in the content. James notes the first thing subject to God's will is life. Look at verse 15. If the Lord wills, we will live. The factor left out by the audacious man is the first thing this humble man notices. The first thing this man looks to the Lord for. 
He looks to the Lord not for his own desires and plans, but for life. He recognizes God as the creator and sustainer of life. This is a humbling realization. The very breath we breathe is not guaranteed. It's subject like all of life to the will of God. God is gracious to grant it, gracious to take it. We must be humble before our great God. This brings up a serious question. That is whether or not we have really submitted our lives to Christ. If you have not submitted the entirety of your life to God, it's impossible to submit your plans, your future to him. The first step towards submitting your plans to God's will is trusting in Christ for salvation and following his example and instructions in scripture. And then you can start submitting your plans and everything else in your life to him. At the end of verse 15, James notes that activity, like vitality, is subject to God's will. Look at the end of the verse. We will live and also do this or that. If the Lord wills, we will do this or that. This is kind of a generic statement, which some have said means the Lord doesn't want us to plan. He wants us to have a this or that kind of approach to life. That's not what James is advocating. Other passages clearly indicate that God uses men and their plans to bring about his will. It is not so much the content of the plans, but the character of the plans that James is addressing. None of the activities in verse 13 are sinful. He said, I'm going to go to such and such a city. I'm going to spend a year there. I'm going to engage in business, and I'm going to make a profit. None of those things are sinful. All of us have probably done something like that this year. We've made a plan to go someplace, and we've gone there, and we've done what we wanted to. We've carried out our plans. But have we submitted that plan to God's will? Have we asked the Lord's wisdom and guidance in that plan? That's what James is getting after here. It's not supposed to be a general idea of, oh, well, I, I don't want to make any plans. I don't don't think the Lord would, would want me to ha- have any firm plans. We should totally plan. We should have plans for the future. We should have plans, but they must incorporate the Lord's will. Planning is clearly encouraged elsewhere in Scripture. Uh, a quick tour through Proverbs will show you many of the links between planning and wisdom and sinful planning and folly. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, trust you're all familiar with this, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. I would love to take you on a tour of the whole rest of Proverbs, but time's not going to allow. Here's a few references if you want to jot down in your notes to study on your own time. Uh, Proverbs 5, 21, 6, 17 through 19, 8, 13, Proverbs 14, 2, 15, 9, 16, 1 through 9. I studied through, through these, and here's kind of some of the connections that are made in Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This leads to understanding, which leads to righteous plans and behavior, which leads to a godly life, which leads to blessing and prospering, which lead to a posterity, a legacy of blessing. Selfish planning in Proverbs is pride, and it leads to more pride, which is clearly stated as folly, which is sin, which leads to death, which is ultimately failure and punishment. So sinful planning does not lead to the kind of success this guy had in mind. Sinful planning will not prosper. It will not be blessed by the Lord. And thinking about planning and plans, um, I thought of my time as a roofer, working in the, construct, in the construction industry. For the last three and a half years or so, I worked 
doing construction. And plans are a huge part of construction. Typically, construction plans are submitted as part of or along with a contract. And these plans are submitted to building owners who pass them or receive them from architects, who pass them or receive them from engineers, who pass them to city, sometimes federal governments, who then either turn them back to the contractors as either approved or denied. And anywhere along the way, anybody can change any little detail about these plans. They can change how they want it done or how much it's going to cost or what the final job needs to look like. They can change anything about it. In addition to building plans, there's training plans, plans for how to accomplish the work, safety plans, plans for emergencies, even plans for making plans. All those have to be approved by different people and groups. Perhaps the phrase, plans are subject to change, comes from the construction industry. These plans are normally submitted multiple times, often revised, and sometimes scrapped entirely. Planning our lives is way more difficult, way more important than any building project. And yet sometimes, the only person we run it by, the only person to give it a stamp of approval, is us. We make our plans for our life, and we stamp, approved, good to go, don't have to think about it, don't have to worry about it anymore. Sometimes we'll invite our wives or maybe our mentors or maybe a pastor to help us with making big plans, but do we regularly submit our plans to the highest authority? Do we make a practice of submitting our plans to God? Are we humble enough to let him change our plans, to say denied? Are we humble enough to submit our plans to the one who holds the ultimate stamp of approval? Christ said the perfect example of this in his life. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And in Luke twenty-two forty-two, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Jesus lived a life marked by obeying God's will. A life marked by seeking the Lord's will, even. Paul followed Christ's example of submitting his life and actions and plans to the will of God. If we had a chance, we'd look through multiple examples where Paul's plans were changed. Paul's plans for his life did not end up the way he thought they would. He submitted. He allowed God to change his plans. And God did a powerful work through him and continues to use his writings in our life. How dependent are we on God? Are you depending on him with your calendar? Does your weekly planner demonstrate a God-centered, God-contingent schedule? Do you submit your plans to God before you begin them? Is Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 really true of you? Let me read it again. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, in all your plans, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. The final verses of chapter 4 indicate that James is indeed addressing the, the disposition, not just the words themselves. Some people have tried to separate verses 16 and 17 from verses 13 through 15 and kind of treat them as separate proverbial sayings that don't have anything to do with the verses around them. I think when we take a look at them, it's pretty clear they're related. Verses 16 and 17, James identifies a lack of humility. The humble disposition is not present in this guy, and James makes it clear. The lack of humility is in contrast to the humble Statement of verse 15. Look with me at verse 16. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. 
There's a contrasting conjunction here. Makes it pretty clear. This is the opposite of what James had just said in verse 15. He says, but as it is, your current statement, your statement from verse 13 is boastful arrogance. This is described by one commentator as someone bragging pretentiously about something he doesn't have and can't obtain. This is someone who begins almost every sentence with I. We know people like this, don't we? They constantly proclaim what they've done, what they have planned next, what their life is going to be. Their life is centered around finding a moment's happiness in in whatever they have planned next. This is the boastful pride of life of 1 John 2.16. This is proud proclamation of self-theism. This is audacious autonomy, which is a clear mark of the world, not of genuine faith. This is the vanity that is so clearly portrayed in Ecclesiastes, if you remember our study with Pastor Rick. Many of the references that I gave you in Proverbs address the folly of prideful planning. James makes it clear with a statement, all such boasting is evil. Boasting about our future, about what we're going to accomplish, is not only foolish, it's not only audacious, it's evil, it's sin. The equation here in verse 16 is, you plus your plans without God is sin. Look with me at verse 17. James here makes a summary statement, a general principle in planning in light of the preceding verses. To the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it. To him it is sin. To the one who knows the right thing. This is pretty much everybody in his audience. All men are given a conscience. Romans is clear on that. Believers should be very in tune with their conscience. As I've grown in the faith, I've come to see that most, if not all, sin requires some planning. It requires some forethought, some de- a series of decisions that lead to sin. James has addressed this in James 1. Somewhere along the way, conscience kicks in when we're planning to do sin. When conscience kicks in and tells us and reminds us of who God is, that God exists, when it reminds us of God's character, of his will as we know through Scripture, what happens next is pivotal. In that moment, one must stop. Cease and desist, progressing towards a sin, or you're going to fall into it. James is very clear on this. To not do the right thing is sin. In all of life, especially in planning, use your conscience. My dad used to speak of this as God-guided common sense. When you're going to make a decision, when you're looking at the future and you have options, when you're not sure what you should do, even if it's a little decision, use God-guided common sense. Use your conscience. Make plans, but realize God is in control, that he can change your situation At any time, he can change any of the variables in the situation at any time. As Christians, our faith is built on Christ, not on ourselves. So why should we boast or find confidence in our own plans? James has attacked the audacious disposition of autonomy and shown it to be completely sinful. He's given us instruction on how we can properly look to the future with a humble disposition of dependence. Kind of like Oliver in the earlier illustration, like my son. It's not a matter of whether or not we're dependent. We're dependent. We need God. But it's a matter of, are we going to live in a way that evidences that? Are we going to live in a way that shows we're dependent? That clearly expresses to ourselves, in our own heads, in our own minds when we're making plans, and to the world that we're dependent on God? Are we willing to let others know that our lives are not self-made? Are we able to submit our schedules and our futures to God? You may be wondering, kind of like I was, what does this kind of submission look like? How do I obey this instruction? Practically, what does this look like for me? I think there's a couple of ways we can 
Well, several ways we can implement this humble disposition. First, we can implement it through prayer. Christ's example was a life of prayer. I read to you a couple examples of Christ's dependence on the Lord's will through prayer. Go to the Lord. Pray. James previously instructed these same believers, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of the Lord, and it will be given to him. We can pray and express our dependence on the Lord in prayer, and at the same time, seek the Lord's will, seek his wisdom for our lives. A second way we can implement this humble disposition is through planning. Make plans. Go ahead. Make plans. Make plans according to God's revealed will. Use biblical wisdom. Seek godly counsel when making plans. Take even small plans, like little bitty decisions that you make, and submit them to God's will, and see how your life changes. Third, we can implement this humble disposition through patience. This is a hard one. The Lord does not always reveal his will, his plan for our life all at once. No, none of us know what the future holds, what our whole life is going to be. So be patient. Wait on the Lord and his timing instead of rushing into things or making quick, impulsive decisions. Trust his perfect plan for your life instead of trying to make your, ideal, instead of trying to make your ideals a reality through planning. As humans, as finite creatures, we're subject to an infinite God. And as inhabitants of a changing world, our lives are constantly changing. Everything around us is constantly changing. You drive down Metcalf, and it's different than it was a few days ago. Life is constantly changing. Are we allowing for and ready for God to work and act the way that he does? Scripture is full of examples of people whose lives are changed and Lives that continue to change because of their faith in God. The disciples are a good example of this, as well as Paul and Acts. Are we following the examples of these godly men? Are we modeling dependence on God in our community, in our workplaces, in our homes? In a few moments, Aaron is going to come and lead us in communion. And as he does in, in the coming days, I want you to take time. Take time to think about, think through your life and evaluate, how does my faith impact my planning? Genuine faith results in planning with the mindset, if the Lord wills. William Henley got it all wrong, and sadly he knows now, in fact, it does matter how straight and narrow the gate is. The scroll is, in fact, charged with just punishments for defiant unbelief, and God is the only master of any and every man's fate. He alone is the captain of souls. May we be ever mindful of this as we set schedules and plan our future.